Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And today I'm going to be talking to uh, a person who I've known and respected for a very long time and a person who's had a big impact on sport and the community in Western Australia uh, in a number of different ways. He was a great footballer a great football coach, uh, a great sport administrator and continues to make a contribution as a, believe it or not, a counsellor these days. Ron Alexander, welcome. Good morning, Mark. So, Ron, uh, you're still staying busy, mate, even at your age. What's what's going on? Why have you become a counsellor? Oh, well, you've got to keep your uh, mind uh, fresh doing real things. So, uh, you know, there's a few things going on with the council that... Uh, I thought could be done a little bit better, so uh, put my hand up, and uh, I've got a I've got a four year term. So this is uh, uh, is it Vincent or Cambridge you're representing these days? No, it's the city of Vincent, which includes areas like uh, Hyde Park and you know the Fitzgerald Street area and Leadville, Oxford Street, etc. So it's quite a, uh, a uh, an old council, but also quite a vibrant one. So this area is familiar to you because you grew up as as a Highgate boy, did you not? Yes, I grew up in Vincent Street, so I've, uh, apart from moving to Melbourne and uh, living in uh, Solder Point for 30-plus years, I'm, uh, I've now been back in uh, the Vincent area and uh, probably about 800 metres from where I was brought up in uh, 28 Vincent Street. So, no, I enjoy, enjoy the area. It's a, uh, a terrific area with, uh, with good facilities and, uh, and you know, largely good people, so it's a, a, a pretty interesting role. So you've come home. Tell us about growing up in that area and how you first became involved in sport. Well, my family, um, I had a couple of uncles, uh, Brian and Ray O'Connor, who played for East Perth and had uh, played a handful of uh, league games between them before they got knee injuries and, and, uh, and other things. But the whole family would, uh, would walk down to, to Perth Oval on a Saturday afternoon and we'd sit over uh, under and near the old old manual scoreboard there where the adults would all watch uh, watch the game and uh, watching people like uh, Ted Kilmurray and uh, and uh, and others and the kids would play up the back. In fact, I can remember my favourite player used to be Kevin McGill and uh, I played in a waffle golf day a lot of years later um, after I'd got back from Melbourne and this guy came up to me at the bar at the, uh, at the golf club and said, oh, you'd be Ron Alexander, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, and you'd be Kevin McGill number seven. And uh, he, he, was, he was very surprised that uh, I knew who he was. And I said, oh, well, you were, you were my favourite player. So uh, that, that was a lovely moment. Juniors and then connecting to East Perth, how did that happen? Well, I was playing with the firstly CBC uh, Highgate, then, uh, then East Perth Highgate, who played on, uh, on uh, Forest Park. 
And uh, ironically, I got my first ever reference from the secretary of the East Perth Highgate Football Club when I uh, went for my first job at uh, age 15. But, uh, of course, East Perth would send players down. I can, I can remember you know, players coming down from East Perth to take a, uh, a training session. And uh, it was amazing how much you looked up to these league players who took a training session. And as a junior... I was a reasonably small. I, I played sort of half forward, you know, wing, centre, that sort of role. So I had to sort of bite and fight and scratch for everything I got. But uh, in later years, when I found myself at six foot five, it was, uh, you know, quite an interesting to be six foot five and still able to bite and fight and scratch because I found a lot of the big guys I come up against <clears throat> weren't all that hard, really, because they'd, they'd got through the junior footy. Um, as a big person and relied on their height. So I think it was an advantage to me. Tell us about your first senior game at East Perth. Can you remember it? Yes, I can remember it. Um, I played, I, I, I went the whole journey. I went fourth. The first trophy in football I ever made or ever won was the most improved in the fourths. And then I went to uh, the Colts, the Reserves, the League, and then into the league side and back to reserves and back to league in 1971. So my first game, as I remember, was in the first game of the 71 season against Swan Districts out at Bassendine Oval and coached by Mal Brown with uh, interesting people in the side like, you know, Brad Brad uh, Smith and uh, Derek Chadwick and Jerry Smithle and all these sorts of players. So, And some of them had actually come down to coach me as a junior at Forest Park. So it was quite surreal. And I never actually thought I was good enough or I never really thought much about playing league football um, until um, Mel Brown, when I was training with the reserves, they also trained with the league side. And uh, he, uh, he he had a chat to me and talked about the possibility of playing league football and, and that. Uh, and before that, I never really considered it. But... So my first game was at the beginning of the 71 season against Swan Districts, which we won. And I recall reading the Sunday Times the next day and Keith Slater, who, who wrote uh, football, and that said, oh, and there was a promising young player, John Alexander, um, who, uh, who looked like he could be a future player. So even though I got my name wrong, it was quite a nice comment. <laughs> Did you play in a premiership team at East Perth before you left for Fitzroy? Uh, yes, I did. Um, in the first year, 71, we played against West Perth uh, in the grand final and lost. So you would have and rucked against 90, Polly Farmer? Rucked against Polly Farmer, yes, yes. Yes, there's a famous photo of Polly Farmer and I in the 71 grand final. And it was appeared on the back page of the West Australian. And it commented on young Tyro, Ron Alexander. I, had, I thought they were slagging off on me with saying Tyro. I had to look up the dictionary <laughs> to see what Tyro meant. <laughs> probably not the first but, time. Probably not the first time or the last time you behave like a big dumb ruckman, Ron. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's always things you do differently when you, you sit down <laughs> and reflect on uh, on things that, that have happened. But we did win the uh, 1972 Grand Final, and uh, that was against Claremont. So uh, that that was good to win that. And uh, I, I just enjoyed playing footy. In, in those days, I got paid $4 for a loss and $25 for a win. 
and I didn't really care what I got paid. I just enjoyed playing football. What sort of coach was Mel Brown? Uh, an interesting coach. Yeah. He was only 25 or 26, and I think he'd probably make a better coach now um, because there was a lot of fire and brimstone, but Mal was also uh, a pretty intelligent individual, and uh, he, uh, he gave me plenty of opportunity as a young guy when I perhaps hadn't played as, uh, as well as you might need to hold your spot. Um, he kept on playing me, which was appreciated, which I, which I realise now. Just then I just presumed I should get a game. Tell us about the switch to Fitzroy and what year that happened and why that happened. Well, I'd sort of progressed in my football. I'd played my first state game in uh, 1973 and, uh, you know, I thought I should get more money and I, I had a discussion with uh, the East Perth board, which was led by President Fred Book and Hex Tremper was the secretary in those days. And uh, I never had a player manager or anything. I just met the uh, the uh, the board and uh, said I thought that you know I'd got to the standard where you know I should be offered a contract, and they agreed. And um, I can recall I got uh, four thousand dollars, and then I went away happy with that. And then spoke to other people, and then thought I hadn't been paid enough, so I went back and 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 said to them, look, uh, I, I think I should have uh, more than that. I think you've taken advantage of me as a young fella. And then uh, they agreed, and then uh, then gave me uh, gave me some more. So uh, I was I was quite happy with that at East Perth, and I was enjoying playing at East Perth. And Fitzroy and other clubs came uh, knocking on the door, talking to me about going to uh, to Melbourne. And in fact, in fact, they flew us over in 1974 to watch the, the grand final, which, if I remember, was between Carlton and Collingwood. And uh, that that was fine, but then it came came down to it in uh, in '75. They were talking to us seriously about going, and Marilyn and I were quite happy in Perth, and we we had uh, two young daughters, and we didn't particularly want to move, so we figured out a brilliant way we could get rid of them. Um, so we decided to ask for an amount which would make them go away and never come back, because as I said, I was quite happy in uh, in Western Australia, and anyway, so we put that to Fitzroy, and they went away for a week, and come back and agreed. <laughs> which uh, surprised Marilyn and myself. But uh, anyway, when it came to the time to go, we uh, were pretty unhappy about going. And I can remember getting on the plane and both of us cried our hearts out and got to Melbourne and after two weeks wanted to come back. Anyway, uh, you know, I stayed for the three years. Uh, we absolutely loved being in Melbourne and uh, loved playing there and stayed for six. So what was the, uh, what was the offer that you couldn't refuse? Ron, seven thousand. So it went from four to seven thousand. Oh no! Oh, the one in uh, Melbourne. Yeah. Um, that was about fifteen thousand. I seem to remember. Yeah. So it was more than twice what I was being offered. But you know, there's there's things people don't realise that that happened in those days, and I, I only realised it in later years. And I think some people are, are still not aware of what was going on in those days. East Perth was actually making um, its way by selling players. So, for example, in uh, 76, I went to Melbourne um, and, and was leased by Fitzroy, two, uh, leased by Fitzroy from East Perth for $20,000 a year. So East Perth were making more than I was making. And in um, 77, they, uh, Gary Malarkey went from East Perth to Geelong. 78, Ross Glenning, Glenn Denning went. 
79, Stephen Spencer. And so nearly every year, East Perth would be selling the player, and that's the way they made ends meet. And one of the reasons that West Coast eventually came into being was because clubs in Melbourne like Fitzroy and Footscray and North Melbourne and that couldn't afford to pay for players from from uh, South Australia and Western Australia. And so that, that competition was starting to fall apart. And then the competition in, in Perth was struggling because they weren't getting or there was the potential to not get fees from... Uh, from Melbourne for players to uh, to play there, and hence keep the clubs in in Western Australia afloat. And I seem to recall the only really viable clubs were were East Fremantle, Subiaco, and Claremont. The other clubs were starting to struggle in those days. So there's there's sort of things behind the scenes that I suspect people even now aren't aware of. We'll take a break, and we'll be back, and we'll talk to Ron about his career with the Lions in Melbourne. Uh, became one of the leading ruckmen in the VFL. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. And we're talking to Ron Alexander. And we're up to the point where Ron and his wife, Marilyn, have left Perth. Uh, Ron has joined Fitzroy for the tidy sum of $15,000 a year. Ron, can you remember your first game in the VFL? Uh, yes, I can remember parts of it most vividly. I can remember the, uh, the very start because we played Richmond at the MCG. So it was a, a, a pretty good place to start. And at the first bounce was uh, Neil Baum. He was the opposing ruckman. And uh, at the, uh, as they bounced the ball and I went up for it, he and friends, and I got a free kick to, uh, to start the season. And I kicked a nice big spiral torpedo, which uh, went down, obviously, towards the Fitzroy goal. And it was marked by Chris Smith, and he kicked the goal. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty quick and, uh, and, and nice introduction to the... Uh, the uh, the then VFL, so it was uh, an, an interesting way to to start. Of course, and, uh, I think we lost the game though. Um, Fitzroy, of course, uh, they've gone by the wayside now as a VFL AFL team, but they were a very strong lineup in those days and and consistently competing for finals. Well, they they'd actually struggled a bit. Um, previously, they'd. they'd uh, they hadn't made the finals for 16 years, as I understand it. Um, and uh, we didn't make the finals until 1979, I think was the first time. So I played in 76. And Bob Beecroft and Max George were recruited at the same time. And then in the following years, they recruited Robert Walls and Bernie Quinlan. So they did some, uh, some pretty astute recruiting. And Bob Beecroft had a very good career at at, uh, at, at Pittsburgh, he kicked a, a lot of goals as a full forward. Um, Bernie Quinlan won a Brownlow medal. Uh, Robert Walls was a, a very good uh, centre-half forward. So we developed a very good side over that journey. And uh, <clears throat> I, was made, uh, I was made captain in 79. And then we made the finals. And that was, uh, as I said, for the first time for about 16 years. And uh, uh, one of the... Uh, the previous full forward son 
Um, Jack Moriarty was a, a famous name at, at Fitzroy, and he'd been the full forward. And uh, his son came on the Thursday night before the first final we were going to play. And he had a lovely crystal jug, which he gave me. And he says his father, Jack, wasn't well enough to, uh, to deliver it. But he, too, used to wear number six. And he was very happy for me to be wearing it because he reckoned I had it go. And his son uh, delivered a uh, lovely crystal jug, which I still uh, have in our, uh, our kitchen today. And it's, uh, it was one of those lovely moments in football. Who were your toughest opponents as VFL Ruckman, Ron? Well, they, they were different types. Probably Simon Madden was one of the toughest because, you know, he was quite tall and he was very athletic and he was just darn good at everything he did. But I come up against players like Gary Dempsey and Len Thompson who were, were way taller than me. Um, you, you'll read in, you know, the stats on Ron Alexander when he was in Western Australia that I was 6'6 and, and 115 kilos. Well, that was a bit of a fib because at my first my first uh, state training session, they asked how, how tall I was and how heavy I was, and they'd said previously in the press how they wanted giant ruckman to you know come up against the Victorians because they were all such big fellows. So I said I was six six and one hundred and fifteen <laughs> kilos now, but uh, back in the day I said I was uh, I'm actually six four and three quarters, and I played at a hundred kilos. But uh, but I said uh, something like 16 stone, which is uh, 115 kilos. So those stats still come up, but uh, a bit heavier than I really was. You played at the Junction Oval, is that right? That would have been uh, uh, quite an atmosphere with 20,000 in there? Yeah, it was uh, was a, a good ground, a, quite a small plane surface, though, which uh, suited me uh, quite well. And so there was uh, there was nowhere for the little guys to find a lot of space, but uh, yeah, the, the junction oval and uh, with a crowd of twenty twenty two thousand, it was uh, it was certainly pumping, and and uh, you know I I very much enjoyed playing there. You also played in the inaugural State of Origin game in nineteen seventy seven uh, when we beat the Vicks at Subiaco Oval. What do you remember about that? Well, it was. It was a, uh, a very interesting time because I, would, I was asked to conduct some training sessions in Melbourne with players like uh, Ian Miller and, and that who were, were also going to get a game in, uh, in that uh, famous 77 first State of Origin match. So we held a few training sessions at, at different parks, Princess, Princess Park and, and, and some of those. Um, but Polly Farmer was the coach and uh, I can recall when... Uh, when we all got together back in Western Australia um, the Friday night before the, the game and uh, Polly asked everyone, you know, to stand up and say what their commitment was to to play in that game. And I can recall Basil Campbell from South Fremantle standing up and saying, you know, any one of the Victorians touch one of the, the West Australian fellas and he'd kill them. Um, so we, we had a pretty committed side and a side that had played um, many times against Victoria before, but you'd come up, if you played Victoria back here in Western Australia, you'd come up against players from Tasmania, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, WA. I can recall playing a game at Subiaco Oval where Barry Cable and, and Graham Moss played for Victoria and we lost the game by seven points. So you can imagine how fired up we were to have just West Australians playing 
and the Flays that had also gone to Melbourne but had West Australian backgrounds. And Victoria were only allowed to play Victorians who had Victorian backgrounds. So it was a fabulous opportunity. And I can recall it to three-quarter time. It was, uh, was six goals to WA and nothing for Victoria. So it was uh, uh, a game that the West Australians, both spectators and players, absolutely relished. What brought you back to WA? There was a coaching job on offer. My understanding is you nearly ended up at Perth rather than East Fremantle. Well, my father, my, my mother had, had passed in 72 and my father wasn't well. And that we, we, we loved Victoria and, and Connor played a staying. Um, I'd uh, spoken with uh, Slim Somerville, who was the president of, uh, of East Perth, and uh, he was in Melbourne and we had a discussion. And he said, oh, Ron, the problem with you coming back to East Perth, which was, you know, my first time, was that we've got two young ruckmen in John Ironmonger and Alex Lashenko. Um, and so they didn't really need a, uh, a third ruckman. And I, I could appreciate that. And at the same stage, I had Perth uh, talking to me and, uh, and also East Fremantle. And the conversation was by phone with, uh, with Merv Cowan and uh, then, then uh, Harry Morgan from East Fremantle come to see me. So uh, um, after discussions with East Fremantle, I, uh, I accepted the coaching offer there. How was it as a coach starting out, your first coaching job? How did you find it? Um, I actually enjoyed it. I had uh, uh, someone you know, Peter Ginoli, come and knock on my door um, in uh, 1982. And uh, he said he was very keen to uh, to be involved and uh, as the person who would uh, be doing the the physical preparation of the site. Uh, Peter had a, uh, a phys ed uh, master's degree and was uh, was interested in that and been a previous uh, player down at the South Fremantle Football Club. So, uh, you know, he was, I think, the first person that I, that I employed. But, uh, you know, I relied on him quite heavily because he's a pretty smart operator and also would be the connection between on field and Graham Melrose and others, Ron Wilcox in the, uh, the East Round coaching box. So uh, it was one of those things you had to be well informed, and so the runner played a, a key and pivotal role in uh, in that. But also, obviously, at quarter time, half time, and three quarter time with the others. So uh, it was a you know a role I enjoyed actually. People talk about how onerous it is and all of that. I didn't find it that so much. But, uh, um, yeah, it was, uh, I think I was about the second last. I think Jared Neeson was the last uh, um, player coach. We'll take a break there and we'll be back after the break and we'll talk about the climb to the premiership in 1985. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Ron Alexander and we're up to a point where Ron has just returned from Victoria to coach East Fremantle as a playing coach. Ron, what sort of team did you inherit at East Fremantle? 
Uh, I inherited a, uh, a team that had, or some, some had been involved in the 79 Premiership, which East Fremantle had obviously won. Um, but then a range of players had left. A range of players had got, you know, a bit older and weren't quite as good as they had been in, in, in the past. And in, uh, in 1980, they'd won five games. In 1981, they'd won five games. Out of their 21, uh, 21 games. So, out of a possible 42, they'd won, they'd won 10. So they weren't going that well. And you know, I had, a, I, I think we won eight in uh, 1982, which was a slight improvement. But I was quite aware that if we sat with the same group of players that we had, that we weren't going anywhere. And so, uh, the choice I had was to, to ask some players to. Um, to move on and uh, and play young players, or just go with the group we had, and so I I really felt that I didn't have any choice other than to to select you know young players and give young players a chance, um, as that was the only way they were going to get any better than uh, than eight games a year. And there were people like uh, Peter Wilson and Andrew Lockyer and Michael Brennan, Paul Hardy. Um, you know, a young, a young Chris Mainwaring. Uh, he came along a little bit uh, later. Um, Murray Renstead, John Bellotti, those sorts of players, um, you know, really helped the, the club, I believe, step up. And we, I, I was very fortunate because East Fremantle had a very good relationship with uh, the great Northern Football League and, uh, and people like Tony Cicerello, who was a... East Fremantle board member and Harry Morgan had uh, a terrific relationship as did Merv Cowan and, and Oscar Howard and, and other board members with the country zone and so we got some very, very good uh, players from uh, the great Northern Football League and other leagues which uh, helped enormously in, uh, in putting a, uh, a very good side together. What do you remember about the 85 grand final? That was a whole lot better than the 1984 grand final. <laughs> and the 86 grand final. <laughs> the 86 grand final, which we, we lost both of those. Um, and I even reflect today on, you know, is it better to win a second? Because we won all three uh, second semifinals um, and then uh, only won the 85 grand final. So you reflect on what you could have done better or what you should have done better or those sorts of things on the losing grand finals. And... You know, I, I think sometimes it's very hard to to actually convince players when you've won a, a second semi-final quite easily that the grand final is not going to be, um, you know, an, another another tough game. And so I think sometimes when you win a second semi-final, you run the risk of getting ambushed in uh, in a in a grand final. But nevertheless, the '85 grand final clearly a uh, a win and one which uh, you know I certainly enjoyed. Immensely, as did the East Fremantle um, supporters and uh, and members, and obviously the players, and so that was a um, it was a great day. And clearly, when you know you do a hard pre-season and you've gone through some uh, some tough games and some tough times to uh, to get to a grand final and win, it's uh, it's obviously very very memorable. And as far as uh, my career was concerned, was certainly uh, one of the highlights of been involved in a, a win like that and we had some people on the day who played tremendously well and stood up when they had to stand up and you remember who those players are and you remember some of those players who weren't 
who weren't the stars but who uh, made valuable contributions as well and made valuable contributions the whole year. So uh, it's a bit like they say, it takes a village to uh, to bring up a child and it takes a whole football club to win a premiership because it's not just about one or two good players, it's about having people who have good relationships with country zones and, you know, the junior football clubs in the East Fremantle districts that are supplying, you know, uh, good players because it doesn't matter how good a coach you are, it doesn't matter how good your half-time address is, if you don't have the players that can step up, then you're not going anywhere. The 1986 State of Origin game, one of the famous State of Origin games at Subiaco Oval, Brian Peake, tell us about going into that game and firing Brian Peake up to be the full forward. Well, it's an interesting story. I think Peaky tells quite a slightly different story. But before the game, you know, I'd, I'd had, a, had a good look at, uh, you, know, you know, forwards playing in, in Melbourne and those sorts of things. And, you know, there were some informed forwards. Who, but they seemed to kick goals on fullbacks who weren't that good and fullbacks that were pretty good. They, uh, they hadn't kicked that many goals. And so I, I was just contemplating who would be the right, you know, full forward for, for that style of game because you're coming up against the Victorian um, All-Stars team and you're obviously coming up against their best full back. So I said to Peaky about three weeks out from the game because he'd come to me and said, I could, I could play in the centre for you. And I said, no, I think you're too old for that. Brian was about 32. And so I didn't say much more than that. And then, then uh, I said to him, oh, you, you think you could play full forward? And he said, oh, I'll kick you six. And I said, yeah, well, talk's cheap. Anyway, for about the next three weeks, he, he badgered me and badgered me, you know, I'll kick you six, I'll kick you six. And then a week before the game, I, I had him at uh, state training. I said, uh, you think you really can play full forward? And he said, I'll kick you six, I'm telling you. So I said, okay, you're going to be the full forward. And then he didn't kick six, he kicked seven. Um, and he was very hard to stop because Brian Peake is very quick off the mark. He can obviously read the ball because he was such a, a talented player who knew how to find the ball and read the play and what was happening. And so he, he got a lot of his goals on the lead, make, making a quick lead. And, of course, he had good players to kick to him like Michael Mitchell and Morris Rioli and Leon Baker and those sorts of players. And so they didn't miss their target. So uh, so Brian, Brian kicked uh, seven, and it was... You know, just really a mark of how good a, an exceptional player he was. But he also had a, uh, an exceptional Western Australian side to, uh, to feed him the ball. And uh, he certainly made the most of it. Tell us about getting the West Coast coaching job at the end of that season for, to be the inaugural coach of a team becoming part of an expanded VFL competition. Well, people had spoken to me like uh, Peter Tannock and Jeff Ovens and and, uh, you know, other people who were, were in the, the hierarchy um, of West Australian football. And uh, um, they talked about the possibility of being a, uh, a West Australian side. And uh, I'd, uh, I'd coached um, that game in 86, but I'd also coached an away game in South Australia, in which we beat South Australians in Adelaide, which was a pretty good performance as well. So, uh, and I'd also been named as the... Australian Coach of the Year in uh, in '86, so it was a good resume to uh, to get a job like that. And then I met with uh, with uh, Richard Collis, who uh, uh, at that time headed up 
um, Robert Armstrong Jones company, and they'd, they'd look like having the most shares in Indian Pacific, which was a holding company for West Coast. So, but there was no there was no firm offer until after the first of the fourth of October. That's when the decision was made whether there would be uh, interstate clubs playing in the, the the VFL, the new Australian competition, or not. So, uh, yeah, you actually had to wait till that was confirmed by the vote of the twelve clubs in uh, in Melbourne. How much of a shock was it to get the sack after winning 11 games in that first season, Ron? Well, there was a bit of a backstory before that. Um, one of the difficulties we'd had was that, you know, a lot of the uh, the people who were big names in West Australian football who didn't get a job on the uh, the AFL, uh, the West Coast Eagles board or uh, the Indian Pacific board, um, a lot of them did as much as they could uh, to, uh, to think the West Coast Eagles Footy Club. So they weren't supportive at all. So it was a particularly difficult year uh, in, a, in the politics of things. So there were, uh, as I said, a, a number of, of, of big names who, who didn't support uh, the club. As, uh, and a similar thing happened when, uh, when Fremantle came into existence. But it was a pretty rough introduction as well because they had to uh, um, have the vote of the 12 clubs in, in, in Melbourne. And on the night of that vote, whether there was going to be a West Coast Eagles club or not, Ross Oakley rang Richard Collis to say, we can't get the eight votes that we need unless you pay $400 million up front because what had been agreed previously was to pay $400,000 a year for 10 years. And then, uh, and then, and then what happened was uh, they, uh, they reneged on that and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't uh, play. Um, so... Sorry, mate. Um, so they reneged, and what uh, what uh, then occurred was Collis replayed the, the formula in up front, and uh, then Fitzroy uh, demanded to have uh, $600,000 of that. So there was all sorts of shenan- shenanigans going on in that first year. And so I got the job, coach, we won 11, and then to answer your question directly, um, when Richard Collis retired as the president of the, uh, the Sydney Swans Football Club because he got sacked in um, 1987 before me. And he got sacked in in 1987 in, in August because Neil Hamilton had taken over Robert Armstrong Jones in an aggressive takeover. So uh, it was a pretty uh, tumultuous year and Richard had a uh, had a dinner at the end of 87. Uh, no, not the end of 87. At the end of, it must have been that 29 years later, it must have been the dinner he had was was in about uh, 20, 2005 or thereabouts when he, when he quit there. And he actually made an apology to me, which was, uh, was quite interesting. There was about 40 people there. And uh, he said the only thing that was successful in the first year at West Coast was the on-field performance. Um, and he actually apologised because he got sacked before me and then John Walker, the CEO, got sacked before the season finished as well. Then I got sacked after the season. And Richard Collis explained it to me a number of years later. He said, well, Ron, it was actually a corporate sacking. It uh, had nothing to do with performance. It was uh, a corporation wanting their own people. So 
that was uh, it was an interesting explanation that I finally got. Ron, we'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about your time as the Director General of Sport and Rec in Western Australia. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. And we're talking to Ron Alexander, influential figure in football and in sport in general in Western Australia. Ron, 1993, 94, 95, you're an integral figure to getting Fremantle up and running. What was your time at the Dockers like? Oh, look, it was pretty interesting. I'd uh, I'd been involved in uh, AFL administration before as uh, president of the... Uh, the BFL Players Association in 78, 79 and 80. So I dealt with the AFL before. And so I assisted uh, Jeff Ovens and others at the uh, the Football Commission to write up as uh, Judy Donald, uh, my PA at Sport and Rec, also helped. She was a South Fremantle supporter. Helped uh, write up all the entry statements for, for Fremantle. And it was a pretty tough entry in many respects because we had to borrow $173,000 off the Dubrow Footy Commission and then pay it all back uh, the next year in uh, 1996, where Greater Western Sydney and Gold Coast got $200 million each over six years. So there was a very different introduction for Fremantle. It was a, a reasonably tough one. And how are you? How happy are you with where the Dockers are at now? Um, look, I reckon I'd have been uh, a lot happier if uh, the Dockers had... Uh, continually taking their draft picks instead of trying to, uh, to pick out uh, stars and, and, you know, get get rid of first and best winners and uh, and then uh, trade the two uh, draft picks for Jesse Hogan, etc. Um, I, I guess the one thing I might have done differently was uh, take more draft picks and recruit less high-profile players. Now, in 2001, uh, you get an appointment which basically precludes you from being at Fremantle anymore after seven years on the board there. You become the uh, the Director of Sport and Recreation in Western Australia, and as part of that, you become a key figure in the push for a new stadium. Yes, well, uh, I certainly enjoyed that role um, and, uh, you know, trying to get people involved in sport and rec and also to, to help guide some of the things at the, the, the top end. And... Uh, Look, Subiaco Oval had become somewhat of a problem, as had uh, the Wacker ground, and both uh, both boards were were chasing the government for, for more money. Football wanted $700 million to do up Subiaco Oval, and the um, the Wacker wanted $430 million to uh, do up the Wacker, something like, you know, $1 billion and $30 million. And the new stadium, when it was eventually built, it was it actually cost $955 million to build. So it was interesting, and I was able to uh, talk with Alan Carpenter and uh, and Bob Kachira, who were ministers and you know premier of the uh, the day, into putting together a a task force which had uh, John Langler headed it up, and I was the, the deputy chair to look at what Western Australia needed. And you know we didn't have either um, Neil Fong or the or the from WA Football or the, the chairman of the WACA on that committee and they were a bit grumpy about that because uh, they thought they should have been but the government of the day 
Um, this is why I often say that the stadium ended up being bipartisan because if the Labor Party of the day hadn't stopped funding to, to football and cricket uh, and, and had the task force look at what was needed, um, we might have never had a, a new stadium. But through Alan Carpenter and, uh, and Bob Kachira and, and John Kabelke, they, they ensured that uh, they followed what the task force had suggested, which was to have one very, very good brand new stadium um, rather than have, you know, Subiaco Oval, which would have been a renovation and empty in, in summer, and the Wacker, which would have been a renovation and empty in winter, they'd have one brand new stadium that everyone would be proud of. So um, it was a good decision, I believe, to, uh, to, to, to do that. And that, uh, that occurred around about 2007. So in many ways, the accomplishment of, of having Optus Stadium and getting that built was, was perhaps even overshadowed by ensuring that the correct decisions were made earlier on. How difficult was it to get football in particular on board in this process? Well, you know, football over the years um, many times hadn't honoured their financial agreements with the state, and that's a matter of record, so I have no problem saying that. And so with their previous record of not necessarily honouring the financial agreements with the state, um, it was also you know, put to you know, the state ministers at the time that there was a very, very good reason because you know, football couldn't handle the debt that uh, that came with it. And they certainly couldn't handle a debt of $700 million. And so the task force came up with, you know, having one very, very good stadium. And uh, I think we were able to, uh, to achieve that. And so um, some of the football personnel weren't happy with that. They uh, largely uh, opposed it. Um, but... Uh, the government, um, you know, both Labor and uh, later on the Liberals, stuck with the idea of having one uh, good stadium because there'd been a sensible report done on what was happening and it was a bipartisan report, so it was supported by, uh, by all colours of government. And the AFL, did the AFL come on board or were they a reluctant participant as well? Well, I can tell you, you know, sitting at a grand final luncheon and listening to the head of the AFL Commission congratulate uh, Andrew Demetra and Dylan McLaughlin, etc., on having a stadium built in, a Western, in, in Western Australia. I thought it was a bit galling, given that uh, they fundamentally uh, opposed it as well. Um, so, and it was a difficult negotiation um, to get them to, to play there, but they certainly weren't going to have anywhere else to play. And their financial contribution to it? What would you say about that? Well, my memory is uh, that they were sent a letter asking for a financial contribution that was never answered. <laughs> so uh, I know they put $30 million into the MCG and $15 million into Metricon Stadium in, uh, in Queensland and $5 million into uh, um, Adelaide Oval and, uh, and zero into Optus Stadium. And then also when they played the grand final there, they made it sound like they were doing Western Australia a favour. I think they ended up probably making more money out of playing at Adopter Stadium than would have had at the MCG. Do you like football now? Yeah, yes. I'm, uh, I, I go along to football. I'm, a, I'm actually these days a Dockers member and buy, uh, and buy four seats and take our grandkids along as well. So, you know, I enjoy a good football match. I, 
I um, see a lot of the football politics. Um, I read Michael Warner's uh, book on uh, the boys' club. Recommend people to read that and then see what they think. Um, but there's a lot of things that aren't what they seem. Apart from footy and the stadium, what would you call your greatest achievement uh, in your time at Sport and Rec? Oh, look, I think uh, one of the things, and John Langner helped that. He used to head up the uh, the WA uh, Treasury. And uh, when I first got the job, I met, went and met with him, and he was very grumpy that that uh, the Sport and Rec Department would get a there'd be a uh, world championship and there would be no stadium uh, uh, ready or available and he'd have to bring money forward out of his budget. And so he suggested we come up with a state sporting infrastructure plan, which we did in uh, in 2000, late 2001. And so over those years, we had a lot of sporting facilities built because we were organised and, and planned and we'd work with hockey or we'd work with whoever it was to uh, to have facilities built for them and money would be put in the, the out years of the state budget and the next, in, in three or four years' time, and that time would come around quickly enough, and it was a time when Western Australia was booming. So there was a lot of good facilities built, you know, like those ones down at, uh, at Perry Lakes, the, the athletics, and the basketball, the, the rugby league, all of those sorts of facilities were built during that time, and that was because the Sport and Rec Department was organised with a state sporting facilities plan where other uh, departments didn't have that. Ron, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. We could sit and talk for hours, I reckon, of different stories that you've got about uh, your your times at different places in football and also uh, dealing with different sports administrators in your time at Sport and Rec. But thank you very much for joining us for Inspiring Sports Stories and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks very much, Mark, and I look forward to the Eagles members and Fremantle members getting to vote on their boards and chairman. <laughs> this has been Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bauer and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.